0: As an artist, I'm growing immensely because I'm not preoccupied with trying to deliver to an inner urge of making art only and stimulating the imagination of others to do something in their world, as a lot of my projects have been about. I'm actually now trying to pursue new forms of making that are not even forms yet. They are just gestures towards an unpacking and an unravelling of things that we think we should be taught.
1: Welcome to the latest podcast in our Arts Research Africa Dialogue Series. These dialogues are intended to stimulate practice, enable research, and inspire collective engagement around the question of artistic research in Africa. I'm Prof. Christa Doherty, the Head of Artistic Research in the Witz School of Arts. In this dialogue, I'll be speaking to Marcus Neustetter, a South African artist, cultural activist, and producer who has been working at the intersection of art, science, Technology and public engagement for the last two decades. We will be looking at some of the collaborative projects that Marcus has undertaken across these intersections and will unpack key aspects of his critical and playful multidisciplinary practice that has ranged from conventional drawing and painting to site-specific installations, mobile and virtual interventions, performance art and socially engaged projects across South Africa, Africa, and internationally. Marcus launched Sandman, the Southern African New Media Art Network, in 1998, while still a student at WITS, where he earned his BA and then MA in Fine Arts. Since then, he's been consistently producing and exhibiting art, and as a member of the Trinity Session, with fellow artist Stephen Hobbs, has produced and curated public art across the city of Johannesburg and South Africa since 2000. Marcus was the artistic director of the first African Symposium on Electronic Art held in Durban in 2018, and has also had numerous South African and international residencies, notably the Smithsonian Artist Research Fellowship in Washington, DC, and the Southern African Astronomical Observatory Fellowship in Sutherland, South Africa. Marcus recently relocated with his family to Vienna, but continues to operate on a primary nexus between Vienna and Johannesburg. Marcus, this is a conversation that's long overdue, really good to be able to speak to you, you in Vienna, me in Johannesburg. And what really comes to mind for me are two incredibly powerful metaphors that you've created in your practice. And one was at your on-air 10th anniversary exhibition with Stephen Hobbs, and it was a work which really spoke to digital arts in Africa. And, you know, the work I'm referring to, it was that generator, (laughs) the chained generator. And it often comes to mind when I'm thinking about digital arts in Africa and all the hype around 4IR, hype that seems largely driven by politicians and tech salesmen, and how 4IR is the profound transformation of Africa. And behind all of that, of course, is electricity supplies that generator just continues to speak to me about the unreliability of electricity and the, the shaky foundation to these utopian dreams of how digital technology is going to transform Africa. And the other is that performance piece you did, which you know I was involved in, I actually did live stream of it, that performance piece pushing against the shed that you did for the opening of the watershed conference on water crisis art and politics here at Witt's campus. And what really struck me about that was all of the, often abstract discussions around policy and approaches to water crisis. And coming through all of that was the immense physical struggle that you went through in that performance piece of pushing a giant plastic sphere filled with water up the actual watershed of Yale Road on the Vitz campus towards the venue where the conference was opening. And it really was a demonstration of how difficult it is for an individual, maybe particularly an artist, to engage with huge pressing social issues. And what also speaks so strongly to me from So many of your works, very diverse range of works, is awareness of physicality and struggle and situatedness of the artist's body, yet at the same time, a a real sense of humor and absurdity (laughs) and how things so often go wrong in the attempt to engage with other ways of thinking, both scientific, other cultures and artistic practice. So that's a long introduction. Maybe we'll start with what I found a particularly interesting engagement was your engagement with big science and art and communities. And that was the Sutherland project around South Africa's large astronomical array project. Can you talk us into that and how you approached it and what you actually did?
0: Sure, it needs to be said that the Sutherland project started off as a fun experiment where I was introduced by a common friend to Kevin Govender, who I had known him at the time and I was going to do some stargazing somewhere, that was the idea, that my intention was to just get involved in some stargazing at, at one point or another, because I've been fascinated by the stars and, and I wanted to immerse my work into that. I'd just come out of a media art process where I was trying to move off the screen and much more into the physical realm. So it links quite nicely to your introduction in terms of the physicality of engaging in, in some kind of a space. I was working very heavily in the media art field and trying to make sense of the interface of the technology with what, what I was doing. And it opened up new perspectives into space, I guess. And so I wanted to look at the sky. A friend of mine said, "You have to meet this guy called Kevin Govender, who's got similar ideas to you in trying to make a difference in the world. But he comes from a science side; you come from an outside, side. You guys should meet and you should chat. And seeing that you're interested in stargazing, this guy organises star parties where you go and Kirstenbosch and you look through a telescope and you look at the skies. And so I met Kevin then." by chance at I don't know, it was like eleven o'clock at night, we picked up the phone to each other. I was on a scaffold painting an artwork and he was busy at a star party and it was a kind of a nice mix of the two. And I said to him, I'm coming to Cape Town and I'd love to meet with you. And is there any chance you're having a star party? And he said, Well actually I'm hopping in a car with a bunch of students and we're driving up to Sutherland to go look at the stars via the large telescope via Salt, the Southern African Large Telescope. And we're going to be doing a little tour. Do you want to come? And on a whim of not knowing where I was going or what I was going to do, I landed, hopped in the car with him, complete stranger. And we just drove up to Sutherland and uh, for the first time, walked onto this plateau where there are, I don't know, at the the time, I think there were 13 international domes. Now there's several more. But kind of walking onto this landscape, that's just all, all of these pods standing, looking into space and being completely overwhelmed by this experience of being amongst people that were observing just like I was, but just in a completely different direction and with completely different attitude and interest. And I attribute a lot of the work in Sutherland to that first meeting with Kevin Govender because he in his own mind, he studied astrophysicist, has been producing incredible work and is now or has been for a while heading up the international program that looks at space education and, and space science in the global way. And He at the time was running the collateral benefits program for this large observatory for the SALT, for Southern African Large Telescope. And he turned to me and he said, well, actually we're having a launch event of some sort, an open day for, for New Year's to open up the International Year of Astronomy. And we're going to invite people to come and join us on this plateau. Don't you feel like coming and doing some kind of art event? You and Bronwyn come and do an art event. So Bronwyn, Lace and I, as fellow artists, were planning a few collaborations and we were doing some projects together, seeing that we were a couple at the time. <laughs> we said, this would be a nice way of spending a holiday, a New Year's party and doing an art activity in and amongst the scientists to get them to open their minds to other ways of thinking about what they're looking at the whole time. And that was really the intention of kind of creating a hook from both sides and saying, how can we use this plateau? I think it was the first time that the observatory was actually open to the public to come in an evening because it's science study time, you know, you don't interrupt the instruments at night. So it was usually closed to the public. And this was the first time that this party was planned that the public could come and view this plateau and the telescopes at night. And so, Bronwyn and I were invited then to come and do this event. I was doing a lot of light drawings at the time and I thought we could play with light and kind of sabotage a little bit what these scientists were trying to do and it was keep the place dark and silent by playing with light. And when we thought about it though, we realised that we went to, to see Sutherland again. Bronwyn and I both realised that the little town at the foot of this observatory, at this plateau, with all these international telescopes that have got millions of dollars invested into them, billions, I should say. There's this little town called Sutherland that is just very disconnected from that scientific pursuit. It's very disconnected from the investment, the scientific investment that's gone into the area, the economic investment that's gone into this plateau, the international focus and the resources that are going in. And this town needed a little bit of attention. And we realized that within the Sutherland landscape and in this little town, there was this very heavy history of obviously early settler history the, the colonial history the apartheid history of weighing very heavily on this little town despite where we were at that point in time in terms of our new democracy i kind of felt the trails of apartheid were more evident there than anywhere else i'd seen in, in south africa and all of that under this umbrella of this international observatory that was watching or that was in the distance kind of hanging over this town and so um We actually took quite a stand, so Ronald and I decided instead of doing a party for the scientists on the plateau, which is all very nice and good, we actually invited everyone to do something else with us on the first day of the new year to open up the International Year of Astronomy. And that was to see how we could engage the community within this little town to try and make a connection between the really desperate state of social separatist thinking within that town that still existed and the legacies of poverty and everything else that was sitting in in this town to this high-end scientific research center. And we basically asked uh, as many friends and family that we could to donate kites. And we went to Chinatown and we bought a whole lot of kites, etc. And our action was to get people to look up on the morning of the new year of the International of Astronomy, nothing else. That was our main objective. How many people can we get to look up? And the best way to do this is to actually raise a kite in this very barren landscape uh, with this very blue sky. And we had these very big fish kites, for example, that were kind of suddenly raised up into the sky. And not even 10 minutes later, we had about 50 kids around us all wanting to fly kites. And about two hours later, we had 200 people around us all wanting to fly kites. And we had materials there and people made things and built things and flew their kites. And we created quite a scene that morning in drawing attention to this activity. Now, people hadn't necessarily made connection between us and the observatory at that point, and that wasn't the intention. It was merely to spark interest in a different perspective on our own landscape. So creating this big fishbowl of kites that you were in looking into the sky, um, eventually over the following eight years that we worked on this project, got people to understand that it actually was about how we engaging with the scientific pursuit that was happening up on the hill. And what the connection could be between science and social development in this town and how art could be the vehicle to bring the two together but i think it was a really bold move of kevin to support it 100 percent and say he loves the idea i mean he he was very much about trying to see what benefits the observatory can bring to the community but was struggling at the same time with the reality of what the scientific pursuit was all about. Obviously, scientists arrive, they get onto the platform, they do their research. They've already booked this time years in advance. So, you know, it's very important for them to focus on the work. They work during night, they sleep during the day. They don't really engage in the town. There's no need for it. And the tourists that you get coming in happen to sleep in the little town, but immediately go to the observatory and see this plateau of wonder in terms of the scientific world, so very little remains within the town that can empower and build the town. And on top of that, we realized that Little Sutherland needed to be kept as dark and quiet as possible in order for the scientists to do their work up on the hill. And so how do you talk about social development and urban growth and, and personal growth in a place that has to be dark and silent? you have to really make people aware that darkness and silence is a good thing. And as you know, the apartheid history has taught us that if something is dark and silent, it is usually because you either don't have power because you're giving the power to the main city, or there's a fear factor in terms of the crime statistics. I mean, there's so many complexities around just defining what darkness and silence means within different groups of people. And so this pursuit to intervene in a creative way in the the relationship between the scientific pursuit and the community development was an exciting space for us creatively because we never defined ourselves as, as artists in the beginning coming into the town. You know, we didn't say to people, We're artists doing an art project. Quite the contrary, we just flew kites, we had workshops, we did activities, we got youth to do little parades through the town, we built little things, and eventually people realized we weren't from some church or some social help group or something like that, but that we were actually doing something that was in parallel to the observatory. And we didn't force it on people, but we rather allowed them to deduce these things by just slowly making these connections. And having the time and the luxury to do that was essential. Now, I have to say that this is a self-funded project from Bronwyn and I. We decided this was going to be a holiday spot for the years to come. And we're going to use at least a month a year in Sutherland to build this project. So it was really an initiative of our own where we showed the true interest that we had in spending time with the scientists to understand what they were doing. So it was a, for us very important because we were interested in the dialogue with the scientists. So to understand what an astronomer actually is doing, spending time looking through a telescope and making sense, or on the computer screen, obviously, in this case, it's not looking through an eyepiece anymore. But, uh, yeah, looking at a computer screen, studying the shifts and movements of light and making sense of the larger picture, and then zooming right down and saying, in the shadows of these telescopes, you know, just beneath it, this large picture zooms down into one moment where there's a little kid who's walking barefoot across the karoo, who's got no idea of the bigger picture, but is dealing with alcohol abuse of parents and school issues and hunger. You know, and so what are these two extremes that exist where we're thinking about our humanity and looking back in time on the one hand, but then dealing with the realities on the ground. And so for us, it was a really important way of understanding our own balance in our own life. So it's a very personal reflection to so say, you know, we, we pursue the science because we dream about the future and the, we try to understand the unknown. But then when you start to reflect back on the unknown that's on the ground, you realize how important it is to constantly maintain that tension of the two. We actually got the observatory to help us get a little house that was outside of Sutherland with no electricity and no cell phone reception, which is fantastic. And we actually opened that up as a little space for artists and scientists to come and hang out on several occasions and just was a kind of 10-bedroom place in one of those old farmhouses. And we just filled it with whoever wanted to come and have dialogues and exchange and become part of this reality check around talking about big science and artistic practice and what it might be. And then on the flip side, go and do workshops every second afternoon in town and engage in community storytelling projects and look at how we could help the local producers make things that have failed horribly. Because as I said before, the town was governed by a handful of white ex-farmers or farmers that were still controlling the economy in the town because that's the natural development that happened and the colored community in that in environment that was mainly suffering from a lot of the dop system that was introduced by the farmers etc many years ago were still suffering in the same way in Sutherland and so to experience these really high complex thought-provoking discussions within this farmhouse and on the observatory and then. Looking at that reality, it does something to you where you start asking yourself why one pursues these conversations and what kind of impact it can make.
1: It was a long durational project and I'd be interested as to what effects you discerned from the project, particularly on the community or the relationship between the community and the big science up on the plateau.
0: The excitement of entering this space of studying the the unknown matter, <laughs> I'll call it that, in the sciences was one that we needed to escape the reality checks that were really dire. We, in our workshop group, for example, I mean, there, there was a group of 10 kids and two of them were suffering from fetal alcohol syndrome every time. You, know, like, you could see the effects of a, a really difficult time in, in South Africa just rolling itself out in the experience then. We were often confronted by all kinds of really aggressive and strange behaviors from parents that didn't quite understand what we were doing. Interestingly, it was mainly the colored kids that came to join the workshops, not the parents. It was only after the second year of building this trust of doing this, this kite raising and, and little parade activity, etc., that we were doing in town, that we got the elders to start talking, turning around and asking us what we were actually doing. So slowly the grandmothers and the grandfathers came and sat on the benches and watched the kids. Yeah, the, the middle generation seemed to be missing. So these are people that went that, that that basically work on the farms or that go to Cape Town to live in the Cape Flats to make money to send back home. There's quite a generational jump between the very young kids and then the elders in Sutherland. And it was interesting that those were then the two groups that we focused on because they were really the ones that were engaging with us. We didn't choose them, they chose us, which is quite a nice thing. They, they came to us without any force. And so there was early on in the project some great moments when we first did the exercises of workshops and building kites and creating telescopes that you could look through with your own drawings of them so if you looked into the sun you could see your own creation in it so you're just using tubes and and recycled material etc we did all of these activities and then we photographed them as part of the project and when we looked at this archive of beautiful photographs that we had of all these youngsters that were having so much fun doing this and becoming very proud and actually starting to voice their opinions and making a statement we took that and we blew it up large. So we got the Goethe Institute at the time, came on board as a slight funder, and we got the National Arts Council to give us a bit of support. And we took those, we blew them up large as billboards, and we started to just temporarily hang them up on shacks, on the church fence at the police station. <laughs> so this tiny town of Sutherland, which has got like, 3,000 inhabitants of at the time, suddenly became activated by these very big statements of these individuals showing themselves in very proud positions. And it was a really interesting shift in the project because people came very conscious of the fact that they were doing something meaningful, even though they were playing, even though they were just looking into the sky with a kite. And those very colourful, very bold and very proud moments in these billboards became a kind of a trigger to acknowledge that you are somebody in this universe. You know, that that you actually have a presence, that you're not just a little speck in this Karoo landscape, which is so overpowering from a scale point of view, but actually that you and your microcosm have got relevance. For me, that was a a critical moment because it shifted the way we saw the participants and the way they saw us as well. And how they saw this not as as an opportunity to also think big, even though they didn't think about the stars per se in the same way the scientists did, but they thought big in terms of their own identity. And what that did is it triggered a really beautiful, revealing process of people wanting to tell their stories and wanting to acknowledge that they've got something to share. So I think that act of taking the micro moment and putting it on a, a big pedestal meant that people felt like they have got something to show us or share with us. So people came to us with little objects that they had from the old you know, things that from the past. We had elders starting to tell us stories of how the forced removals happened for them. You know, they actually still remember this. They were part of it. And we had really emotional moments. Another critical point, it was really beautiful. On that land where we were always flying kites and doing activities, literally sits between the white neighborhood, you know, the way the nice buildings are with old farmhouses, et cetera, where the tar road comes to an end. And on the other side, which is the mainly the colored shacks and smaller buildings that were built at the time during the forced removals where people were moved into that section and controlled there. And that land in between is, is a really interesting space because it's that kind of <laughs> that, that buffer zone. And that's what we activated. And soon we found out actually just adjacent to that land on the other side of this little dry river that was there was actually where people were originally settled, which was on a farmland. And we were then shown that the old ground, really this old ground, was the place where houses had been demolished, where the people were forced to demolish their own homes during the forced removals. And then the rubble, the hills that were just lying there and the broken crockery and everything that you could see lying around was this kind of graveyard of a sense of identity and history. And so this engagement with this community became very much about an acknowledgement of the The early kind of whatever, the hunting of the Bushmen, we found a license from the Belgian government that gave permission to hunt the Bushmen to the moving of people off their land, the relocation into a space, etc. And when people came to us to start telling the stories of the ancestors and the past, there was a moment where we then asked them to tell us the story in the location where they were affected by this history. And we had this beautiful intergenerational moment where the elders were telling the kids about how the houses, the rubble that was all around, was actually evidence of a past. And we used white ribbon to draw the footprints of the houses the way the elders remembered it. And the kids were standing in the corner, holding the corner pieces to kind of make the drawing while the elders told the story itself. And so suddenly it opened up a beautiful trust relationship because they were talking to the youngsters and we just happened to be there. And it became a dialogue and suddenly people trusted us and there were emotional moments where people said, this was the first time that they could speak to anybody about it, especially white, white male <laughs> and female that, that, have, that have engaged with them in some form or another. And it again, became an incredible breaking part in the project because suddenly at that point, we realized that this engagement was now open for receiving information and giving information. And that's also the point at which we started to introduce the observatory much more seriously, where we then said to people, well, let's talk about this land ownership question. Let's take you up to the land that you fear is not part of your land because it's now owned by the observatory. Let's go and look at the the stars together. Let's create star parties. Let's tell your stories about the stars. And so there was this nice mixture of scientific pursuit and personal cathartic reflection on the past. And we were trying to constantly see how the two could rub up against each other and create new meaningful moments there was many 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 powerful moments that to this day put tears in my eyes when i think about the engagement in the process but there's one particular one that Bronwyn actually had an experience she had that she often recounts and there was Wim Thomas Clutter who was at the time when we interviewed him like 103 or something (laughs) one of the elders and he started to come forward with his stories and he said when he was a young boy, yeah, <laughs> way back when, when he used to see a shooting star fall from the sky, his parents would tell him he must go find where the stars fallen. And if he finds it, he must pick it up and he must throw it back into the sky because the night skies won't always be as beautiful as they are now. And that little narrative was such a beautiful one. And then... We, our imagination just exploded in our minds. I mean, we just got so excited by these images that he was drawing for us by telling these stories. But straight afterwards, he chuckles to himself. And I've got that recording somewhere. He chuckles. And then this is all happening in Afrikaans. And you hear him say, and he, sh- he kind of shakes his head and he chuckles. And he says, but that's not really possible because we know that these stars are much bigger than earth you know so suddenly the kind of scientific component that he believes is out there you know that the fact starts to mix in with this memory of these metaphors and these stories about environments and realities and so these were just some beautiful moments that happened at the observatory where we brought people up where we looked at the sky and that culminated for me in a major moment and that is where together with all these stories that we collected and actually having the stories in the visitor center at the observatory to make people aware of the fact that all of this was happening. We started to offer community tours So people could actually go and look at the the little town from a different perspective. So you arrived at the observatory, you walked into the visitor center. There were a series of installations that we contributed to the visitor center, which is all about science, really. And we brought the people's voices into that center. And then at the end of that tour, you could go back down to town and actually have a tour of the town itself and and hear about the town history. So, So we tried to introduce local content into the scientific space. The other part that we were then questioning was the space itself that was owned by the observatory or the land that the observatory was standing on that was so protected due to scientific pursuit. And Somehow someone's mentioned, oh, we're not allowed to go up there. It's not our land or that used to be our land, but no longer. So we just packed a car full of one of those combis. We had a star combi that we were sponsored for a while We pasted with stickers and everything with stars. We drove around and we took communities up to the plateau. We packed a whole load of people into this car from the old age home mainly, and we drove up onto the plateau and we stood in a circle. And we kind of held hands in this big circle, kind of three-dimensional, diameter, four-dimensional diameter circle in the end. And we said, so why don't we just claim this land to be ours? Because, you know, Japan's got a dome over there. Germany's got a dome over there. The USA's got a dome over there. Why don't we as the group of Southerland just say we want our own dome and we want our own land on this plateau? So claim it back. And that's literally what we did. We drew a line in the sand. We stood around holding hands and we said, this is going to be the future Southerland dome. This is where the scientists have to understand that the community of Sutherland also want to observe the stars from this plateau. And uh, that became an ongoing struggle for about two years. (laughs) Bronwyn and I tried to convince the observatory and Kevin and Carolina and, and the rest of the collaborators on the project. I have to say that Carolina Odman Govender and Kevin Govender were our big allies and partners in this project and, and helped make it happen. Both of them as scientists and people with large hearts that really believe in change making through the sciences possible and necessary. We were are advocators of this project and, and so they helped also push this agenda. But it took us about two years to get the permission to get this three metre or four metre diameter space on the plateau somewhere to build our community dome it's not quite at the top it's on the footpath that leads you to the top which is actually quite nice it's a set away from the big domes it's slightly lower in a much more rugged part of the terrain but what we did is we used the corbel building style which is the local building system and then we had the steel geodesic dome on top that you can lie underneath this little dome You can go inside you can lie underneath and you can look up at the stars with your naked eyes, a naked eye telescope. And it's got the grids there to kind of map the sky for you. And it became the Sutherland embassy, so to speak, on this plateau. And it became the reason for anybody from Sutherland that wanted to ever go onto the plateau to have a reason to go. They could just come to the gate and say... Uh, yeah, I want to go to my dome. It's mine. Yeah, it's my land. It gives me access. Whether anybody did this other than the tour guides and the people that we've worked with over the years that, that know the project, I don't know. But what it was at the time, a very, very important symbolic gesture towards opening up the scientific mind to the fact that there are neighbours that need this validation, they need to understand what's happening in this context. And I think those debates with a lot of the scientists were very exciting. We had some scientists that completely annihilated our idea and said this complete folly and it messes with our research. We had that side of the spectrum. And then we had the other side of the spectrum of people nodding and saying, yes, we acknowledge the importance. And if this is a small gesture, then it's a small gesture. We ended up financing the whole thing from art funding, which is important to mention. This didn't come from the scientific community in terms of funding. But what it did do is spark a lot of debate and interest and discussion around what that could mean for the future. And, and interestingly enough, you have this issue all over the place. If you look at the observatory or the telescopes in Hawaii, they had massive uh, conflicts there that they had to resolve around land ownership and why the scientific pursuit is so important in relation to local indigenous heritage, etc. So there's always that clash. So for us, that was a very, very important moment to understand different ways of thinking towards building a future community that's not just scientifically aware, but actually on a humanitarian level, much more connected to what's on the ground.
1: What comes through to me in hearing about this account of this social engagement around science and the use of kites, the old people with their stories, particularly that one about the shooting star and the very old man and and his, his childhood memory of what his parents told him, is the notion that I know has been very important to you of the vertical gaze, so of looking up into the sky, into the stars, but then also looking down into the darkness. And there have been numerous projects that that you've initiated around light and exploring the possibilities of light as an imaginative stimulus, as a catalyst for the imagination. Can you take us through that aspect of, of your thinking and your work?
0: I want to touch on something that you said now that's really exciting, which will lead into this, which is the stimulating of the imagination. as something that I find so important because so quickly, when as artists we work within the scientific community, and it happened even in Sutherland, you get categorized as the science educator you know, or the outreach program. And it's so difficult to actually step out of that role that you are given. And the only way to do that is not to try and explain the science. (laughs) The only way to do is to actually not try and explain to someone what the Big Bang is, as per the visitor center in Sutherland, but actually create a project to simulate what it could look like that something happened at some point, and then allow the mind to create the rest of the connection and then get the scientists to explain it because they explain it better anyway. So <laughs> I think the role of the relationship between kind of community art and science, because it's not just the dialogue between art and science in this point. It's about that third component, which is so important. When I say community, it's, it's obviously a loaded term because the community projects are always of a particular nature. It's not the audience, it's more the participant and the interested individual that wants to and, and group of people that wants to be part of it. And so the role that I found myself in, and this is where the light drawings and light experiments come from, is often trying to find magical ways to not explain the science. But create an aha moment where your brain just opens for a split second to go, this is beautiful or this is exciting. And then that moment of your brain opening is a moment where you can actually create a sense of curiosity towards what this is about. One of the things that happened in Sutherland, as an example, is we were looking for cheap ways because we were self-funding this project, cheap ways to create impact. And at night, obviously, one buys a little projector and you do things with projections and you do all those kind of things. But it's all very heavy technology. People can't do it by themselves. But very quickly, going to the cheap Chinatown, believe it or not, there was a little China shop in the little Sutherland, (laughs) and buying things like glow sticks and little LED lights became a fun way to map the stars that are up there on the ground, You know, to literally draw the connection between what's up there and what's down here and kind of create a, a mirror image and start to reflect on this up and down scenario in a really cheap way. And then using a normal cell phone camera or long time exposure on your better camera, you could create quite beautiful light drawings. Now there's no high art kind of technical knowledge that you need to do this. Everyone can do it. And that was was so beautiful about it is that we could create magical moments of trying to simulate some of the ideas just by taking a few pictures and playing with light. So for example, we simulated the big bang by using rope lights and getting a group of 10 individuals spinning these lights around. And I was on a water tower photographing down what was happening on the ground below. And they were running around spinning these lights, etc. And I just started to take photographs of these spinning lights. And when I looked at the image and I showed them to this group of youth that have just been through a kind of science education program, they all looked at and said, we created the Big Bang. It was like an image that was then. And then I had to send it to everyone's phone and they were very proud to show everyone that they were part of the making of this image. And suddenly there was a completely new understanding of how they could be creative in their space and play with it and so that was part of this shift away from not being the science educator or the community representative but actually understanding one's own position in relation to what one creatively can do with it so the pursuit of the vertical gaze was a lot about that as i already explained looking at what's happening on the ground and looking up in space but more to that point it's also about looking into a kind of a time travel so Talking to an archaeologist, the moment you swipe away the first layer of dust on a surface, you're really looking back in time. Yeah, it's, it's looking down is very much about unearthing things by just literally moving layers away. And we worked actually with Sven Usman, who's an archaeologist in Sutherland. We dug down into middens to understand the history of some of the middens on the farmhouses. So it was literally looking back in time in a particular kind of way. And at night, we were looking up into the stars. So there's this kind of vertical journey that we were constantly exploring. And similarly, I took that exploration further than at the cradle of humankind, looking at the caves where finds have been made over the years and then going through the potential of what might be below in those caves, but actually climbing into the caves and then looking up and seeing the cave openings like portals, like the telescopes that I was looking through in Sutherland. And these cave openings became portals into another world, both going up and down. And light always seemed to be the critical component in that because, you know, you need to dig away the ground to be able to let light in to be able to see something down and looking up into the sky you know that it takes so many years for certain lights that are in the skies to reach your eyes because that's really how our eye works, it's light bouncing back at us. So everything is kind of time and light related and so I became quite obsessed with this idea of how we can tell stories with light and talk about the vertical gaze um, and where we stand on that gaze. Many years before that, I, was, I climbed Kilimanjaro in a kind of critical part of my life where I was looking for some kind of meaning in my life. And I, I was hoping to have that aha moment when I was at the top of the mountain, which I never got. But I had the aha moment when I was on my way up And I was sitting on the edge of a little cliff or whatever it was. I was looking down and I could still see the lights of the city of Moshi, the base city of Moshi, glistening in the distance. And then I looked up and the stars revealed themselves in an interesting way. And it almost looked like I was in this light tunnel with city lights and stars above. And I kind of felt myself hovering in the space in between, trying to make sense of where do I want to position myself as a human? Do I want to be engaged in the community And the people in the lights, or do I want to be floating in space and making sense of the world from that perspective? And so this all comes back to that moment for me where it's about a sense of where are we now in this thin slither of now? Where do we exist in trying to make sense of our our lives? And I think particularly in our time that we're in today and with everything that's been going on, I find that a lot of this research with the crossover of science and, and scientific pursuits, have led me more and more to try and understand this moment. And the observatory was a critical part of that. The archaeology research and looking into the archaeological finds and moments were really important in in that sense. Conversations with philosophers, like in projects we're currently doing, are really critical and all of it seems for me at the moment looking back at it in this discussion with you at the moment in my monologue to you, <laughs> is about trying to find myself in these two spaces, you know, trying to make sense of how as an artist can I produce, just like how the scientist says, well, how can I pursue science when outside my front door, there's a community in need? I, as an artist, ask myself, how can I make art when outside my front door, there's a community in need? And how do I m- marry my own interest, pursuit and hope, I guess? for where I want society and myself to be one day, with making the work relevant within the everyday. How can someone actually have access to the work and not just have to go into a gallery or museum and go, oh, that's very nice, or that's very pretty, or I hate it, but actually how can they plug into it in a very lived experience? These are very exciting discussions to have with scientists because they have exactly the same struggle. And it's not to say that we always have to think about that third component, But when you do think about the third component, it illustrates the privilege that you're in to be able to lose yourself in your discipline. And it illustrates how important it is that you are pursuing the discipline with others in mind and not just your own formula that you're trying to solve for the sake of focusing in on only on one thing. And it shaped a lot of my production and conversation.
1: Marcus, I think that's a very valid point. And particularly in... Conditions such as South Africa of such gross inequality and patent suffering around that it is nevertheless still very important for the artist to uphold or point to imaginative possibilities beyond the present and following the significance of that vertical gaze you've also been very inspired and and you've used again very fascinatingly creative ways, the South African satellite, and in fact, the unfortunate journey of of the South African satellite, which, as we know, was badly damaged by solar storms out in space, and that's the Sumbandila satellite. What has that been for you, and how have you used, as an artist, that scientific mission of the South African satellite launch?
0: Yeah, I I think it might be valuable just to give a bit of context to the satellite for anyone listening that doesn't understand the satellite. It might help just to mention where this started. When South Africa um, launched the Southern African satellite called Sat, which was designed as a kind of micro-Earth observation satellite, it was launched in September 2009. And it was launched as a way of Basically, observing Africa, yeah, Southern Africa from above, and giving us data that we could then use to make sense of our own context. I personally was very excited because it symbolically meant we were. Trying to do something that gave us ownership of our own perspective on ourselves. Yeah, I mean, we are so burdened in any kind of colonized context with the view, especially the first world, on other contexts and how we are sold back our own image so often. I mean, this is the same from projects I've done in Senegal to South Africa. Wherever you go on the African continent, there is the same thing that you always have this outside perspective back on yourself and you're being sold that perspective as something that you buy back. It's it's the most bizarre thing. So when Google sells us images of our own neighborhood, I often ask, just because you have the camera, does it give you the right to own the image? What does that mean? And so I got very excited at the time that we have our own camera facing down at us. And I had access through the Sunspace system and 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 the network there. I had access to the server and the images, well, they were giving me the images of the satellite that was going overhead. And so I then used those to make works. So we are zoomed in on areas, I focused on the aesthetics of the image. So the series of work that I made at the same time was called Somewhere in Africa, which was intentionally obscuring and intentionally about the exoticization of the image of what we expect to see on, on a picture of Africa. And I just found aspects that were colourful, that were bright, that were interesting in shape or whatever it is, and I accentuated those as digital paintings. And so I was in my element. I mean, this was the best thing that could have happened: is that I had this collaborator that sent to send me images. Shortly after all that excitement, there was this solar storm, and the onboard computer was fried. We've got no idea what's happened, but we know that the satellite's still out there because we can track it. And so Madela is now floating in space, and I got extremely frustrated because I was on such a high. I need to say that the word sumbandila in vendor means lead the way. And so it was symbolically of me to kind of say, well, what is the next step that we were going to take? And I was using the scientific observation tool to actually become this imaginary motivator for me to say, well, what is next for me personally as an artist? And then that was taken away horribly in in one fell swoop. I didn't give up. Uh, My intention was to carry on dreaming what this satellite might be seeing. And as you rightly said earlier, Art needs to uphold something of the imaginative that is not necessarily always rooted in trying to just be about practical solutions. I really enjoyed the fact that I could not make any sense of what the satellite was experiencing, but that I could excite myself and others as to what the satellite might be seeing. So this isn't meant to be a kind of science fiction thing where a UFO flies past and the alien waves at the satellite and carries on flying. It's much more about what are the magical scapes and contexts that we don't necessarily understand that we are pursuing that in our mind's eye, we might already have the solutions that need to be had. And the satellite could just be a stimulator of those solutions. And so I went on this pursuit, everything from doing strange dances to building runways out of glow sticks for the satellite to come and land itself, to standing on a ladder on the top of a mountain and shouting, Zumba (laughs) like crazy things like that, to a series of drawings, to actually working even at the observatory with trying to capture some things. But a really meaningful moment happened for me when I was actually on a fellowship with the Smithsonian, between the air and space museum and the african art museum so it was a kind of dual fellowship program which was very exciting in in washington and so i spent half my time in the archives of the african art museum looking at artifacts in these warehouses and then I spent the other half of my time at the Air and Space Museum speaking to the conservators of space junk and the people that were at the time looking at um, Mars and Moon images and studying them in different ways. And I worked with the planetarium there and I found old drawings of planetarium drawings done in the 20s and 30s and 40s that were then used to make the planetarium show eventually. Where these are imaginative drawings of what Mars or Moon could look like. And so I was really interested in how the scientists themselves were speculating spaces, how they were dreaming, what things could look like, how they got to certain conclusions of why they would draw Mars in a certain way, et cetera. So I was caught between the mythology almost that it was embedded in the African Art Museum and the scientific attempt to explain what things look like in, in the Air and Space Museum. And so for me, that juxtaposition became very exciting when I then could quote that the scientific object could no longer give me the factual information that I wanted, but actually is purely became about the mystical, the mythical, the the unknown. And so for me that relationship with Sumadila is about that that tension between those two. I just want to add that probably the most magical thing that happened in that residency or in that in that fellowship was I asked the curators of the African Art Museum to turn off the lights in the museum storerooms. And we used torches to explore the objects in the African Art Museum for the first time. And we looked at the landscapes that the shadows of the objects made. And Those shadow landscapes were not that dissimilar to some of the drawings and strange things that are found in the archive of the Air and Space Museum of speculations of what Mars could look like, for example, or Jupiter or whatever it might be. And so and so, even though there were two different pursuits and two different processes, my brain was constantly bouncing between what how the scientists were trying to vision and speculate and how a carve of somewhere in, in Southern Africa was carving a sculpture that now stood in the museum that cast a certain shadow had a, a nice mirror to each other. And... I, deviated slightly, but I think that relationship with the satellite is a lot about that. It's it's not just about the scientific pursuit, but actually about a different kind of meaning making. And now especially, I think I've just launched a project called Lead the Way Again, which was a big show that I had in Johannesburg November last year until January this year. And it was really looking back over the last 10 years of collaboration with the satellite. When I say collaboration, it's a very big word because I didn't get much back from the satellite for a while. <laughs> and still not. But I find the lonely ambassador floating out there that's not hearing my calls, maybe she is hearing my calls but can't answer, is for me the collaboration that I need because it's about stimulating my own inner mind as to what it could be that that the answer could possibly be. But what it has done is it's led me to produce a whole series of things. And one of them I'm very fortunate to say is a letter that I've recently made, which is a tiny little artwork, which is my attempt to get as close as possible to Summandila And that is to send this letter to the International Space Station via the Moon Gallery. So I was asked to participate in a project where I could send something to the Moon in 2025 and in the meantime to the ISS, which is currently actually orbiting in the the ISS. And I I drew a little map, I guess, of what I think Zumbadila is seeing back on Earth an ink drawing and a microscope on a little cubic centimetre little book that you can fold out. And if you fold this little booklet out, there's a Morse code kind of etched into it. And the Morse code message says, lead the way again. And my secret hope in the back of my mind is that maybe the satellite comes across the ISS and they take out the little letter and they send a little Morse code signal to the satellite to say, Marcus says, please lead the way again. But why this has been such a pinnacle, obviously, it's amazing to have something floating in space and know that some scientists are going, what the hell is this about? And why does it exist? And why is he speaking to space junk? I think while while that is a, an important component to the project, the real thing that became very evident in the feedback that I'm getting in the dialogues I'm having at the moment with a range of people, including, as I said, people working in the sciences and philosophers, etc., is the meaning making that this little gesture brings with it. We are in, in, in a really tumultuous time on on Earth. I mean, people argue they're always tumultuous times. But, but in terms of what at the moment is bombarding us from an information highway of crap that we're dealing with on every day, this little glimmer of hope that we've got something as redundant as space junk that could maybe lead the way one day, gives all of us a sense of power and I've had really interesting reflections with people saying well actually maybe it is this looking back at the gestures that we can make as humans in stimulating our imagination as to what the possibilities are that are more important now than ever so Lead the Way again has been a really exciting project for me not only as an artist because I keep on making cool things with this idea that I could be given a new way to think but it's come at a critical moment where, as you mentioned before, I'm currently sitting in Vienna and I moved from South Africa to Vienna just before COVID hit. And I am in a crisis, uh, as so many people are, in terms of my identity, where I am, why I'm here, why I'm not there. I continue my projects with my partner, Stephen Hobbs, and in, in the Trinity Session in South Africa. So I'm still active. I've still got projects happening all over the place that focus on community development and research and, and public space, etc. But at the same time, I'm sitting in a very different context in Vienna now. And I find that these larger projects that that point at a, I guess maybe as people call it, the overview effect, you know, when you zoom out and you get a sense of what it means to be in a position to be able to look at the big picture, one can't forget what happens in the microcosm, but one needs these poetic moments, I guess, to give oneself a bit of space to dream. And I've had a lot of people dream. I've been getting a lot of people dreaming in response, and and that's really magical for me to know that as an artist, I can help do that.
1: Marcus, let's pick up on what I think is a hugely significant project that you've got involved in. You've been co-initiator of it in Vienna, but it has connections here to South Africa and elsewhere, and that's the Zone project. What's very interesting to me about it is that it's yourself, Bronwyn Lace. Fellow artist and collaborator, but it also involves, as a key member, an evolutionary systems biologist. That's Johannes Jaker. And you brought in a curator, a very well known, internationally respected curator and designer, the Turkish curator Basak Sanova. And in the credo of that zone is the declaration that it's an art science project, but you're not attempting to find an intersection between arts and science discourses, which is often the goal of a lot of art science projects, isn't it? Or even more modestly, a bridge. But you're actively aware of the differences between the dialectical tension between these discourses and are seeking to maintain that difference while opening up a new space, a transdisciplinary space in which the potential for truly innovative forms of understanding can manifest. Can you talk a bit about this project, how it came into being, and you've already had a couple of instances in which you've worked together, collaborated. Can you tell us more about it and where it's going?
0: Gladly, because it's actually a beautiful departure point from everything that one does as an artist and building a portfolio of practice um, that one's kind of realizes, well, maybe there's something else out there that's got nothing to do with art, but still speaks to the same drive that one has. It does talk towards a way of future thinking. Yeah, so The Zone was actually started with Basak Senova, Bronwyn Leis and myself to kick it off, and then Johannes Jäger joined it. And in the dialogue initially, it was about just trying to make sense of this transdisciplinary potential of art meeting science without it being about either or. I'd like to kind of maybe use a fun little game that we played to illustrate what the project did in the beginning and then take it to where we are now. So in Vienna, there's the Natural History Museum and the Art History Museum that sit directly opposite each other on the main square in in the central Vienna and You go into the Natural History Museum, and you have a certain experience, you go into the Art History Museum, you've got a certain experience and you go right into the middle and you look left and you look right and you think, well, what permeates from both of those buildings that could hit me in the middle, that informs who I am when I stand between the two? Am I an artist? Am I a scientist? Am I a crossover of the two? Am I a marriage of both? Both of the museums have had either or in them. So there are lots of art science projects that happen all the time in these museums so it's not about it being one or the other we know both then pursue both disciplines but in that moment where you're standing between these two spheres of influence within the disciplines you realize that there's a different space that you could occupy and so we made it physical by just standing in that space physically and saying well what does it mean to be standing right here between these two canons of two certain practices so that's just to make it somehow physical in that moment at the beginning And that evolved further and further into trying to make sense of one's own understanding of the other discipline, that's that's one component, and how one fits into it. So to quote all the Sutherland projects and all of that, you know, how do I play with science but not take it that seriously because I'm still an artist or how do I you know, get get excited by certain visuals that are generated and then I inform myself and I learn about it and I do a few classes and I become a pseudoscientist for a moment and I go back into making art. You know, those are all fun participation. But what if fundamentally there was something that we've overlooked? What if fundamentally when the zeitgeist was about finding new forms and the explorers were going out to make sense of the world, they didn't care too much whether it was art or science? You know, maybe at some point it was just about what the world is and where it's going and and who we are. So um, we're saying, what if in that moment there was a, a different practice that was evolved that stood between the two that didn't have the same attention then and eventually petered away. And so the zone is not to be defined by me right now. It can't be defined by me right now because it's a very kind of hypothetical idea that there is something that exists outside of this dual relationship of art and science but what's becoming quite interesting we're starting to define what it's not so we're starting to eradicate all the things that it's not about and we're discovering new ways of re-analyzing certain things like for example looking at plato's cave you know we're currently going through this whole journey down you know making sense of plato's cave and undoing the cave and actually then ending up with the shadows and getting rid of everything else. So all you've got is the shadows. And now we're standing in front of these shadows and we're saying, well, the shadows themselves in Plato's cave are now the entry point into this new world. What stands behind the shadow? How do we create these shadows? What is the information? If we could slip into the shadow, we no longer are concerned about what casts the shadow. We accept that there's scientists and artists that have cast shadows, that have built worlds. We are looking at sense-making and world-making in a way of trying to avoid making new worlds, but thinking about what it is that sits beyond our practice as individuals. It's very theoretical in that sense. It's very um, experimental and very seductive because it allows you to go into spaces that you'll feel very vulnerable and that you, that you almost fear sometimes, but allows you to play and experiment as much as possible. And in that sense, it's been incredible working, for example, with Johannes Yeager, who as a philosopher actually takes a lot of the approaches that are accepted in the everyday and and questions them in a really interesting way. So he's taken us on a bit of a journey in understanding, not the science per se, but the thinking behind the science to kind of unpack ideas that we need to unpack in our own practice as artists. So as an artist, I'm growing immensely because I'm not preoccupied with trying to deliver to an inner urge of making art only and stimulating the imagination of others to do something in their world, as as a lot of my projects have been about. I'm actually now trying to pursue new forms of making that are not even forms yet. They are just gestures towards an unpacking and an unraveling of things that we think we should be taught. It's a little bit like going to art school again. And I listened to the podcast that you had with Carl, which I really enjoyed, because he introduced a lot of the art science thinking to me actually when I was studying it, so Carl now gave me a bit of that leg up on that. But when I listened to that, I remember or listened to that, I remembered in my first year at university, him and a few other lecturers basically telling me I need to unlearn everything that I've learned what came before, and I'm almost feeling myself back in that position again and it again is so relevant in the now you know it's so relevant in the way the whole world is reinventing itself and trying to find new ways from environmental crises to wars we are all trying to find new ways of thinking about how to how to function differently and so as an artist the zone has become something that is a future project it doesn't have a form yet i mean there are iterations i can talk about briefly but the the real publishing of this platform is one that can't take the conventional forms anymore. It will insert itself in a gallery. It will insert itself in a, whatever, um, hopefully a, a, an article in Leonardo one day or whatever, where there are platforms that are receptive to this kind of work. But essentially what it is, it's about finding its, its own audience. It's about defining its own space that it needs to occupy. And so what's interesting about the zone as a geographical concept, as well as a concept, we're <laughs> talking about a zone being a, a space of some sort. I feel that we can't define it as yet. And there was a funny joke a while back when the coffee shop started to open again in Vienna post one of the major lockdowns we had. We submitted a proposal to the city of Vienna to activate the coffee shops like they were activated before the time of the succession. You know, it's like kind of uh, when, when when scientists and artists and thinkers were just hanging around in cafes talking about the possibilities of what they could do. So we kind of wanted to reenact some of those moments at the coffee shops. Unfortunately, the proposal wasn't accepted and we went straight into another lockdown. But the idea of... Activating spaces in a way that takes us back to kind of a resetting moment is an exciting prospect for today. And so the zone has fed us in that way and we're starting to tease a few people with it. So we're inviting people into what we're calling Zoom zones at the moment until we can go into physical meetings again where we are allowing people to join us on the journey and, and give us feedback, watch these performance lectures and engage into quite abstract concepts. So we have doing it with art students, we've worked with some philosophy students, we've got scientists in sessions. And what happens is that we're getting very diverse and strange responses from all sides. But at the same time, we are slowly shifting the thinking of some individuals that we're hoping will become more susceptible towards a different way of thinking about a discipline that doesn't sit in either all And doesn't necessarily become about that, as you said, the intersection of art and science, but rather looks for something new. Obviously, this means changing many decades, centuries of institutionalized thinking about this. So, you know, this is not something that we're going to necessarily be able to execute in the same way to create a third zone that becomes institutionalized, like the disciplines, the big canons of art and science, if I can put them into singular concepts. But what it is aimed to do is to just, again, change our perception and perspective on the world by allowing us to understand that there's alternatives if you're practicing in either or both of those disciplines. And that if we can build enough of a thinking and experimenting around it, then hopefully we can slowly stimulate a different kind of support system, is maybe the wrong word, but a a different type of reception of practice that really breaks that boundary. Because as you know, trying to convince scientists that art is important, trying to convince artists that science is important, is not that difficult. As when it comes to the funding, to the policy, to the institutionalization of it, it becomes really complex. But if you don't even start at that level, but you actually start at a completely neutral, and new space, maybe that's another way to go about it. Yeah,
1: Marcus, there's so much more I'd like to speak to you about, but we've come to the end of this particular space, this dialogue, and thank you very much. And Definitely, as you know, very interested in your work and these collaborations, particularly the zone, and we'll be staying in touch with them as you go forward. So good luck with it all. Thank you, Chris. You've been listening to a dialogue between myself, Krista Doherty, the Head of Artistic Research in the Witt School of Arts, and my guest, Marcus Neustetter, the South African artist, cultural activist, and producer. This podcast was hosted and produced by myself, with technical production by Elna Schutz. It was funded by the Andrew W. Mellon Foundation as part of their support for the Arts Research Africa Project in the Witt School of Arts, University of the witt Johannesburg, South Africa. The music for the podcast is by Lee Rosvier and is used under a Creative Commons license.